Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Very good to be here. I want to make sure that I also thank Brianna for uh, introducing me and the Thomistic Institute for the invitation. Um, I'm, I've been asked to say something about greed in Christian societies. Um, I'm a historian, so I'm going to do that historically. I also wanted to give a little more um, specificity and focus to the, the topic. And so I have a title. Uh, the title for the lecture is, Is Greed Still a Sin? Avarice, Acquisitiveness, and the History of Christianity. Um, I'm doing it from a historical perspective, not only because I am a historian, but because for all of us, whether we have an interest in history or not, we are all creatures situated in time. We're temporal beings. The past is always what has given rise to the present. The present is the product of the past for every human being who has ever lived in whatever part of the world, in whatever period he or she has lived. So it follows that if we want to understand the present and its institutions and practices, its attitudes and assumptions, we have to look to the past to see where the world that we know today, how we experience it today, where it came from. We want to know how things got to be the way that they are today. We have no choice but to look to the past. Now, this is trivially true in the sense if we think about the very, very recent past, like, you know, what were you doing earlier today in order to get to this room? You had to actually walk here, right? I mean, so to understand this very particular, specific individual present, right? But the same principle applies to 200 years ago, the town of Eugene was not here at all. So if we had to tell the story of how the, the, the town of Eugene got here and so forth, we would have to tell a historical account just to establish the principle there. Once we understand it, once we see it, it's not contestable. And it also makes history the most relevant discipline for understanding the present if we want to have an eye toward the future. So just a plug for history there. You want to understand yourself, you want to understand the world and how things got to be the way they are, there's no choice but to do it historically. Well, you can make things up. That's what most people do, but you know, invent a past. Among the way that things are now, is the fact that whether we like it or not, we're all born into a society that is marked by open-ended acquisitiveness and consumerist capitalism. That's supported by institutions and laws. It's grounded in long-standing assumptions about individual desires and self-determination. That's the case not only in the United States, but throughout the Western world and indeed beyond it. It's assumed that individuals should be permitted and legally protected to buy as much as they want of whatever they want to, up to their credit limit or beyond it, for as long as they can get away with that. And if they, if they choose to, they can do that without regard for anybody else. You don't have to think about anybody else's needs, desires, wants, or whatever. Your money is yours to do whatever you want with. And it's assumed, not universally, but widely, that people's satisfaction of their self-chosen desires contributes centrally to their, their own individual happiness. So decide what you want, get it, and live happily ever after. Even though, of course, this is not at all the way that marketing actually works. 
because anybody who's involved in marketing or thinks about it for a minute knows that the worst thing for any advertiser is an actually satisfied once and for all consumer. Because if you actually once and for all satisfied, you wouldn't want more stuff. So that would be a disaster. Because of course, the way that it actually works, as the, the great late sociologist Zygmunt Bauman put it, it's a, it's a cycle of acquire, discard, repeat. Right? It's like a shampoo bottle. Right? Lather, rinse, repeat. Acquire, discard, repeat. The very thing that you've been encouraged, you've got to have this, you've got to have this model, you've got to have this brand. But as soon as you buy it, the most important thing is to be convinced that that's no longer good enough and you need the, the latest one, right? Who's ever bought more than one smartphone? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good, we're, we're on the same board. So the widespread, overwhelming, not, it doesn't need to be stated assumption, right? To be rich is good, to be poor is bad, not least because, of course, the richer you are, the more you can buy what it is that you want, the more you're able to live as you please, the more you can enjoy yourself however it is you choose to. To the extent that you're not, you can't. And so one corollary, of course, this, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is the way that higher education tends to function primarily in the United States, and that is as de facto vocational training. It's usually about getting a credential, hopefully with some expertise attached to it, so that you can be future, in the future you can be employed. Or it leads to professional school that will lead to employment after uh, an, another round of, of further credentialing and education. At Notre Dame, I teach a, a lecture course called Christianity, Commerce, and Consumerism, the last 1,000 years. That course starts in the 11th century with the commercial revolution in the wider society, with the Gregorian revolution within the church, Pope Gregory. Uh, and it runs from the 11th century through the Middle Ages, the early modern, the modern period, all the way up to the present. In that course, I examine the intertwined connections among human aspirations, economic realities, politics, ideas, religion, and society over a millennium. But the first day of class, I tell students that over this semester, I'm really only after the answer to one question. One question. How is it that a religious tradition in which greed, avarice, Pleonexia for the Graeces among us, right? Greek. How is it that a religious tradition in which greed is a deadly sin gave rise to the most acquisitive societies in the history of the world? That's the question. Now, there's no doubt that modern, commercial, industrial, consumerist, and now the most recent layering on top of that palimpsest, surveillance capitalism, there's no doubt that in its historically consequential manifestations, it emerged especially in transformative ways within Western European countries and their offshoots. That includes, of course, the United States. And it's also true that by far the dominant religious tradition within Western Europe since the late fourth century, um, even more since the 11th century, has been Christianity. Now you'll be glad to know I'm not gonna try and cram an entire semester's worth of lectures into the next 40 minutes or so. Now, it's a, that's a very good thing for both of us. But I am going to try to give you an overview. I'm going to give you a sketch. Some of the key turning points, some of the key aspects of this history that taken together give us a sense of how we have arrived where we find ourselves today. 
Again, the present is the product of the past. And I'll do this in sort of five stages, five steps. This, this is going to take several hundred pages in the, the book that I'm currently working on. Um, the title of that book is The Way of the World, Power, Wealth, and Civilization from the Last Ice Age to the Anthropocene. That's where I'm going to end this lecture. I'm not going to do all that here today. Tonight, though, I'm going to start by establishing a kind of a baseline, very basic baseline, a New Testament baseline regarding ideas about greed and avarice, and closely related issues, such as views about acquisitiveness, possessions, wealth, and self-dispossession, giving things up. Secondly, after that, I'm going to talk a bit about how already by late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, Jesus' radicalism in the Synoptic Gospels was commuted into a kind of two-tier template of vowed religious life on the one hand and lay life in the world on the other, as well as I'll say a little bit about the consequences of the widespread, um, let's say, departures from the ideals of those respective um, commitments. After that, I'll move to the religio-political conflicts of the Reformation era, the 16th and the first half of the 17th centuries, and how these in turn contributed thereafter in the later 17th and the 18th centuries to a consumer revolution, a consumer revolution across the religious divisions between Protestants and Catholics in the latter part of uh, the early modern period in Europe, which amounted functionally to an abandonment of the traditional Christian condemnation of avarice as a deadly sin. From there, I'll go on and talk a little bit about the ways in which modern uh, developments from the Industrial Revolution, modern economic ideology of uh, endless economic growth, the protection of individual rights to, among other things, buy as much as you want of whatever you want, and the applications of science in a wide range of technologies since the 19th century have created a world in which, as the character Gordon Gecko, for those of you who might know that 1987 movie, Wall Street, does anybody know this movie, right? What's the famous line that Gordon Gecko says in that? Greed is good. Greed is good, that's, that's the one, the payoff line from Michael Douglas. And then finally, at the very end, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit about how unfortunately it's now clear, anybody who's had a pulse over the last several years and has looked at a news story um, knows this, that the combination of human desires, behaviors, institutions, and practices in open-ended, fossil-fueled economic growth based on natural resource extraction and environmental destruction, multiplied at scale, cumulatively applied, has had and continues to have some deeply troubling global economic and ecological consequences. That's what Pope Francis talked about in his encyclical Laudato Si in 2015. It's also what he reiterated in shorter compass, but with more urgency still two weeks ago in his apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum. And I'll end my, my talk with that. So that's all we're doing. No worries, we got this. <laughs> start then, I'm gonna start with Jesus' radical baseline. The basic reason why greed or avarice is a deadly sin in Christianity is because of its repeated, pervasive, and unambiguous condemnation throughout the New Testament especially in the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. This is, of course, in direct contrast and contradiction to the dominant American ethos that I mentioned at the outset, 
to be rich is good, pursuing, getting what you want. Jesus warns in the strongest terms, in multiple parables, many sayings about acquisitiveness, the pursuit of wealth, seeking possessions. And so here's my, let's say my imitation of an evangelical preacher, right? I'm gonna remind you of a few relevant verses that far from exhaustive, but all of which are relevant to the point that I'm making. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and mammon, wealth. Luke 12, 15, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Matthew 10:25, parallel in, uh, uh, sorry, Mark 10:25, parallel in, in Matthew 19:24, the very famous image, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 6:24, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And perhaps most unvarnishedly, most unsettlingly of all, Luke 14, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. There are numerous other passages and parables, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the community of goods, sharing all things in common in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter two and four, Two more examples before I move on from outside of the Gospels. Um, first letter to Timothy, chapter six, verse 10. Another famous line from the New Testament, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And James, chapter five, verses one through three, a passage that I don't think makes it into any of the liturgies um, throughout the three-year Catholic um, liturgical cycle. And once I read it, you'll know why, quote, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming for you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. Right? You guys have that one memorized, right? <laughs> Cheers you up every morning. All biblical passages, of course, have to be interpreted, but when all is said and done, I think there's no way for any honest reader of the New Testament to, for example, contend that Jesus extolled wealth, that he praised possessions, that he championed or indeed even permitted acquisitiveness, that he celebrated self-chosen desires to pursue what it is that you want. On the contrary, he said we have to give up our very selves, our own desires to follow him. Now, why would this be? What's at, what's at stake here? This, I think, takes us really to the heart of agape, love, the core of what Jesus embodies and models and commands. It also takes us to the fundamentals of theological anthropology, a Christian view of human persons. And the bottom line is simply this, because it's wrong, it's sinful, and it's against God's will, the Hebrew prophets say this again and again in different ways. Against God's will to have and to seek more than you need when others don't even have enough food and water, clothing and shelter to survive. This is what's really at the core of the story, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. We are embodied souls. We're not pure spirits. We're not angels, right? That means every human being by definition, has to have certain basic material, 
biological needs satisfied before we can talk meaningfully about what it is to flourish as a human being. There's no way you can talk about right, all these other things that you can do and so forth if you don't have a dependable shelter, if you don't have adequate food or clothing. Think then about Jesus' criteria when he talks about when the Son of Man comes and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, right? What does he say it's going to be on the basis of? Welcome into my kingdom, you who had intense interior spiritual experiences, you who spent long out. No, he doesn't say that, right? Blessed are you when you gave food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, right? Comfort to the afflicted, right? When you did it to them, you did it to me. You didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. He doesn't say, you followed all the moral rules. Congratulations, thumbs up, you passed God's test, come on in. That's not what Matthew 25, 31 to 46 says. What it means is that if you love someone the way that Jesus is talking about love in, in, the, in the Gospels, you'll make sure that their most basic needs are met, including from the, the story about the widow's mite, even if that means having to give up things of your own. She gave up even what she had to live on for the sake of other people. Now, this extremist, and let's call it what it is, this is not prudence. There's no Dominicans here, so I'm sorry, but this is not the Aristotelian virtue, Thomistic virtue of prudence. This is extreme. It's totally radical. The resonance of this, though, in the ancient Near East, which we tend to forget, Jesus enters a civilizational world that's already ancient. The earliest Sumerian city-states are more than 3,000 years earlier by this time. This is a world already, as the great Roman economic historian Walter Scheidel calls it, dominated by what he calls the original 1%. A huge siphoning of the surplus wealth created from agrarian field economies that siphoned to the very top. That's the case through a whole series of first millennium empires that the Jewish people have to deal with. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, finally the apex predator of the ancient world, AKA the Roman Empire, under the direct or indirect control of which both Judea and Galilee had been since Pompey took that part of the world for Rome in 63 BC. Jesus is born about five or six BC during the reign of the first Roman emperor. Augustus. Note that this is utterly at odds. This idea, this, this emphasis and this extreme view of Jesus about possessions and wealth and so forth is totally at odds with modern assumptions and modern ideas that religion is somehow separate from economics or it's somehow separate from politics. That's a modern idea. We'll get to that in a minute. That comes about because of the intractable religious disagreements and conflicts of the period that I know the best and study the most, the Reformation era. Okay, part one. See, my wife said, you really should have passed out seatbelts before this lecture, okay. The second part. Now, what the Gospels say that Jesus said about possessions and wealth and acquisitiveness and human desires and self-dispossession is, to say the least, extremely daunting incredibly intimidating. So what do early Christians, the apostolic fathers, the fourth and fifth century church fathers, what do they do with it? Except maybe 
among the earliest followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, who are expecting Jesus' imminent return after all. This is the, the community in, in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. Except possibly for them, and biblical scholars are divided on the historicity of that account, nowhere, nowhere in early Christianity does sharing possessions in common become the norm in society at large. It's important for us to remember that the number of Christians in the first two centuries, especially after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, remains very small, too small to have influenced the wider society. By around the year 200, as nearly as we, and you know, we don't have statistics, of course, these are all based on different kinds of demographic models and so forth, but most scholars think that up at about the year 200, so almost two centuries after Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, around the year 200, probably no more than one-third of 1% 1 of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian. That's minuscule, way too small to have affected the wider you know, patterns of the, the wider society. But well before the Emperor Constantine in the early fourth century offers the first political protection to the church. Christian writers such as Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria are articulating ways to deal with Jesus's extremism. They're trying to find, um, I would say, clever loopholes. Clement, for example, and I'm sure this is a view that none of you have ever heard in any form before, Clement of Alexandria comes up with the idea that no, wealth is neutral. Wealth per se, money per se is neutral. Everything depends on the interiority and the intention of the person with the wealth and what the wealth is used for. Anybody ever heard an idea like that before? Yeah, I thought so, okay, right? Clement of Alexandria. It's repeated in different forms by many of the church fathers. Early Christian bishops, the church fathers, ordinary Christians fundamentally accommodate themselves. They accommodate themselves to the way of the world their major achievement, which is also an innovation in the ancient world, is identifying, singling out the poor, the vulnerable, as a group, as such, and trying to make sure that regular poor relief and almsgiving caters to their, their, their most egregious needs. But for sure what they're not doing, overwhelmingly, there are always example, individual examples, of course, Many of these people are held up as saints in the history of the church, right? But the vast majority of Christians are not renouncing all or most or even very much of their, of their possessions. They're not, in other words, doing what Jesus said to do. This doesn't change with the Christianization of the Roman Empire starting in the fourth century. Continuing through the fourth and into the fifth century, which is, of course, also when the Roman Empire starts to have some very serious and, as it turns out, enduring structural and other problems that lead to its breakdown. Throughout the fourth and the fifth century, through Christianization, we find the same radical inequalities, the same extreme social strata, socioeconomic stratification, and the persistence of the same slave society that had characterized uh, the Roman Empire. Very good book about late Roman imperial slavery by the um, historian Kyle Harper, if people are interested. The breakdown, the dissolution of the Roman Empire in the fifth and the sixth centuries, first in the west, then in the eastern half of the empire, leads to a kind of political fragmentation. It leads to economic 
localization and an extreme simplification of economic exchange in the early Middle Ages. It's a much poorer society in the early Middle Ages, especially in the Latin West. Rome itself, Rome probably peaked somewhere about 1.1 to 1.2 million people in the late part of the second century, which is astounding for, no, no city in the world becomes that large again until London circa 1800, which is astounding. Between 450 and 550, Rome goes from 500,000 people to 50,000. That is a demographic collapse. By the ninth century, there's maybe 25,000 people in Rome, which must have been bizarre, because of course the built structures, the architecture, the crumbling architecture of, uh, of Rome um, would have still been an enormous space with 25,000 people kind of you know, scurrying around like human rodents in, uh, amidst the ruins. But what doesn't happen in the Middle Ages is the emergence of any social order, whether we're talking Ireland or Italy, whether we're talking from the North Sea to Spain, that implements or even tries to implement what Jesus said with respect to possessions and wealth. This remains a world of fortunes for the few and misfortunes for the many. It's just that they're, they're much less elaborate and abundant in the fortunes than was the case in the um, gold-powered fourth century, the late Roman Empire. But of course, all those daunting passages from the New Testament remain part of the Christian scriptures, part of the Christian liturgy. The Latin and, in the East, the Orthodox Church's way of dealing with them is essentially to create, what I alluded to briefly before in my intro, to create this two-tier template. It's derived basically from one phrase in Matthew's Gospel is made to bear an enormous amount of weight. Specifically, Matthew's version of the parable of the rich young man, and I say Matthew's version because this was something, I mean, embarrassingly, like many of you, Listen to these passages many, many years. But until I actually was reading the biblical scholarship about it and compared the parallel passage in Mark 10, verse 21, Luke 18, 22, it's only in Matthew that we have the qualifying phrase. If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. That becomes the basis for the distinction between the so-called councils of perfection, right? You've heard this phrase on the one hand. The Dominicans, I'm sure, here have told you guys about it. That's their job, on the one hand, and the ordinary moral expectations for Christians on the other. Because in that phrase, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions. It's like, <laughs> man, thank you, Jesus, right? I don't aspire to be perfect. You know, I just want to do enough to you know, kind of lead a decent life, be a good person. But it's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. All those other passages, right? Luke 14, 20, no one who doesn't give up all their possessions can be my follower and so forth are all still there. But this becomes the crucial distinct, this phrase becomes crucially important for the categorization. Some people who are deliberately going to seek to follow the radicalism of what it is that Jesus says with respect to material possessions, wealth, and everything else, those are members of, become members of vowed religious communities. Others don't have to do that. They're going to lead normal lives. They're going to be served in the world by members of the clergy who aren't vowed religious in the same sense, who will remain in the world to help them. And the, the laity are to pursue the moral virtues as, as best they can. They're to avoid sins, including the sin of avarice. And they're going to continue to lead you know, ordinary lives in the world. 
but very much an untransformed world, a world still marked by massive disparities of wealth, total inequality of opportunity, fortunes for the few, misfortunes for the many, just as it was um, in, the, in the ancient world prior to Jesus. The first major consequential institutionalization of vowed religious life in the West is the Benedictine order. The Benedictines, Benedict of Nursia, early sixth century, Benedictine monasticism. There, there are some predecessor monastic movements prior to that, but they don't take hold and have the kind of institutional staying power and influence that Benedictine monasticism does. And here it is, right, male and female religious live out Jesus' radical commands in community, set apart from the wider society, because, part because the wider society obviously is not conforming itself to Christ. So what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to transform that society, but we can separate ourselves from it. And in our community, we can seek to live the gospel in its radical, unvarnished uh, way. A big problem, it's a problem that has characterized virtually all Catholic religious orders from the Benedictines forward, is that it has proven incredibly difficult to remain poor if you take a vow of poverty. Partly because rich Catholic lay donors want to show their appreciation by giving you their lands and their money. And when they die, they give you all this stuff. Please pray for my soul. It's and of course, you don't want to upset your rich donors any more at the University of Oregon than you, know, you did in the Middle Ages with Benedictine monks. And so the pattern that happens again and again in the history of Catholicism is a reform movement of, of uh, some or other form of vowed religious life that then becomes wealthy over time. So by the early 10th century, we have the Benedictine Monastery of Cluny in East Central France. It's a back to basics reform of the Benedictines because the Benedictines have become wealthy. But by the late 11th century, Cluny itself has become the wealthiest monastery in Western Europe. They have hundreds of daughter houses, incredible church, elaborate litur liturgy. Their monks chant all 150 psalms every week. Can you imagine how well you'd know the psalms if you chanted them every week, the entire cycle? That's a ton of psalms. You'd imagine how much time is being spent, right, on that de dedication. So what happens? This is the backdrop for 12th century monastic, new religious orders. The Carthusians, the Cistercians, the Norbertines are all 12th century. We're going to go back and do it how it's supposed to be done. Because look what happened to Cluny. They got rich just like the Benedictines did. But what happens to the Cistercians? Same thing. It just takes even less time. By the end of the 12th century, the Cistercians are among the largest landholders in big chunks of France. We have a takeoff of the medieval economy starting in the 11th century, what economic, medieval economic historians call the commercial revolution. It's going strong through the 12th into the early 13th century. Cities are growing significantly. Commerce has increased dramatically. And in the early 13th century, these conditions are the backdrop for the formation of a new kind of religious order in the history of Catholicism, namely the friars. Right? Most important of the two orders are the Franciscans on the one hand and the order that has the, the uh, chaplaincy here, the Dominicans. Basically, what we see is a commitment of these members of these religious orders of being not 
drawn away from the wider society, but deliberately putting themselves in the midst of it. The monastic religious orders at the time think this is like some kind of a joke. You, that's not what being vowed religious is. You withdraw from the world. You don't go deeper into the world. Eh, we're going to do it differently. When we step back and look at it, though, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, also the, the, the Augustinians at this time, it's, a, it's an adaptation and it's a reaffirmation of that two-tier template that we see already theorized in late antiquity and instantiated in the Benedictines starting in the sixth century. That is, they themselves, both the Franciscans and the Dominicans, at least start out, they're gonna live and affirm, take vows of radical poverty, live lives of radical imitation of Christ. But for lay Christians, lay Christians involved in this burgeoning urban commercial economy in the high Middle Ages, for them it's enough to, to cultivate and maintain an interior detachment from your possessions. Very easy, right? Just try it. Are you detached from your possessions? Let's take an inventory. Yeah, I'm detached. Oh, great, that was easy, yeah, right? But it's, the way you show it is by almsgiving. If you don't show it by almsgiving, then you're not detached from your possessions. But it's the same kind of an accommodation with respect to wealth that we see um, uh, in the early monastic orders as well. Incidentally, some of you may know this, because in the Franciscans particularly, I mean, St. Francis of Assisi has a special devotion and insistence on the vow of poverty. He's one of the most extremist of all Christian saints in this regard. Doesn't even want his followers to touch, literally don't touch coins. One of his followers, he, he, they're, they're walking along supposedly, this is one of the stories in the Fioretti, the, the later collected stories about St. Francis. And one of his early companions sees a coin and, and picks it up. Francis does his, you know, holy freak out. He makes him, he says, he makes him put it in his mouth, walk over to a dung heap and get rid of it, spit it out on top of that pile of crap because that's where that belongs. That's St. Francis. But it's also Jesus-ish. <laughs> but because of that commitment within the Franciscans specific, specifically to poverty, they have a huge rift in the latter half of the 13th and early 14th century. The so-called spiritual Franciscans, they are, this is what, they insist on following Francis in his radicalism. The conventual Franciscans, of whom St. Bonaventure is the most important 13th century representative, they accept the solution to the problem of poverty. We don't own anything, the Pope owns all of our property, and we just use it, right? But the spiritualists, oh, you know what? Francis would have called that out in a, in a heartbeat. By 1318, spiritual Franciscans are burned as heretics in Marseille. So these issues, right, super important, super important during the commercial ferment and growth of the high Middle Ages. The other important bit of the story, and I'm going, yeah, I always do this. You don't seem bored, so that's all right. We were talking about this at dinner. Somebody's a good homilist, good. If they're crappy, you want them to finish in five minutes, right? Somebody knows how to get a lecture, it's interesting, you can listen for a while. Okay, so I'll get to the end, I promise. The late Middle Ages, huge problem in this regard with respect to the two-tier template, specifically with respect to members of vowed religious orders. It's one thing if you take a vow of poverty and actually live it. 
It's another thing if you take a vow of poverty and you live in a magnificent church with incredible courtyards and all kinds of extraordinary land holdings and everything else. It's also a problem for the church hierarchy. Bishops, cardinals, popes, the popes at Avignon in the 14th century, huge increase in the papal bureaucracy, huge increase in papal taxation and income and so forth. There are lots of efforts to reform this in the late Middle Ages. We shouldn't imagine that people you know, were, were, were you know, indifferent to it. That's certainly not the case. But there was nothing close to a systematic reform between, say, the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century and the early 16th century. And the great English uh, economic historian of the 20th century, R.H. Uh, Tawney, said about wealthy popes and churchmen that they were those who, this is a great phrase, they preached renunciation and gave a lesson in greed. Preached renunciation and gave a lesson in greed. Some of you may have read Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales before. If so, one of the, one of the most unforgettable characters in that uh, satirical lineup of late medieval figures is the pardoner. The partner is the ultimate, he is like the proto-televangelist. I mean, it's utterly fleecing people. Knows what he's doing, doesn't care, he's in it for the money, and you know, isn't this great? In fact, you know, because avarice is sin, he's helping people out. Give me your money, then you won't be avaricious. See, that's what he said. All right. Now, this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop that helps us to understand part of the reason for the success of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Not because the Reformation is primarily concerned with the churches, the clergy's moral shortcomings, the gap between ideals and, and, and realities per se, but these are pervasive. They've been criticized for a long time. Everybody knows from their day-to-day -day life what they can observe, the realities of these problems. They're a soft target for the Protestant reformers, whose principal concerns are with respect to soteriology, the way that human beings are saved, doctrines of grace and sin, penance, salvation, and so forth. That's what Luther and Calvin and the other major Protestant reformers are primarily concerned with. But when, as part of their tirades against the shortcomings of the Catholic Church, when they denounce wealthy bishops and wealthy members of religious orders. Nobody has any doubt about what they're talking about. These are supposedly the closest imitators of Christ. These are the ones who've taken vows of poverty. What do these luxurious, privileged Episcopal or papal or vowed religious lives have to do with what Jesus said? And of course, by this time we have the printing presses going, the scriptures are being translated in the vernacular way before the Reformation by the point. And people can read, I mean, you can read it for yourself. All those quotations that I was saying before, people aren't stupid. They can read those things and they can look around. Uh, what doesn't belong here? What doesn't fit, right? There are small numbers of radical Protestants, different Anabaptists, who actually do try in various ways to put Jesus' radicalism into practice in, in the early 16th century. They don't get any sustained political backing they're small in numbers, and so they have no really wider impact. These, the descendants of these groups today are, are groups like the Amish, right? the Old Order Mennonites, right? black buggies, horses, 
Lancaster uh, County, Pennsylvania, a few other spots back in the Midwest and the East. The influential Protestant churches and traditions are those which, like the Roman Catholic Church, are the ones that get sustained political support, namely Lutheranism on the one hand and Reformed Protestantism, or as it's more colloquially known, Calvinism on the other. That I would include the Church of England in that. Their way of dealing with Jesus' radicalism with respect to, to material possessions and wealth is, is very different. Justification by faith through grace alone means, in their theology, right, you are not judged by God or saved based on what you do or don't do, including whether or not you enact Jesus' admonitions about wealth and possessions. For them to think that your actions actually contribute to your salvation is something they denounce as works righteousness. They see it as detracting from God's glory and the fact that it's only God's grace that saves you. The Catholic view that you actually have to contribute something to your own salvation if you don't want to make God the author of sin, indeed the author of damning everybody who's preordained to be damned forever, uh, you better actually have some part for human free will. That's a huge dividing line between classic Protestantism and Catholicism. That said, because it's so obvious in scripture, all those passages that I met before, these guys obviously place an enormous emphasis on scripture, they're insistent on the importance of denouncing the, the pursuit of possessions and so forth. They just don't think it contributes anything to your salvation. For them, this fits in a category of you're already saved. Relax. Part of your sanctification is to live that out by eliminating greed from your life, living simply and so forth. Between the mid-1520s and the, the 1640s, a series of major military conflicts roils Europe. From the German Peasants' War through the Thirty Years' War and the English Revolution in the mid-17th century, these are usually known as the wars of religion. We really should call them the wars of more than religion because religion isn't separate from the rest of life in the Middle Ages any more than it was in the 16th century. It's not supposed to be separate from the rest of life. The whole point is that religion is supposed to inform and shape life for everyone in common. These conflicts, they're violent, they're destructive, and importantly, they're inconclusive. None of the rulers involved achieves what he, in the case of Elizabeth I of England, she wants to achieve. So the question then that arises, right, how do we deal with the problem of societies whose cornerstone, foundational cornerstone, right, true Christianity, true Christian doctrine and practice, the cornerstone has become the stumbling block. So what do we do? What's the situation? How, how are we going to solve this problem? The way that it was handled, broadly speaking, is by redefining religion as something that can and should be separated from the rest of human life. It should be made a matter of individual choice and preference, a matter of one's own individual beliefs and worship preferences and devotional practices. So everybody can believe whatever they want to, so long as they obey the laws of the state. The price of religious freedom is the restriction the restrictive redefinition of what religion is, what it means, and agreeing to disagree for the sake of coexistence. Separating religion from shared public, political, and economic life, a key component 
of the theorization, the institutionalization of the classic modern understanding of liberalism. Separation of church and state, distinction between public and private in the ways that we tend to understand it, the distinction between religion and the rest of life, the protection of individual rights, individual freedom of belief. Now, note with respect to our theme of greed and avarice, this redefinition removes any realistic prospects for the traditional condemnation of greed to function as a break on acquisitiveness in the wider society at large. Of course, any individual is still free to, to be completely self-dispossessed. You can give up everything you want, but there's no shared commitment to that. There's no preaching about it consistently anymore, there's, right? Religion is being separated from the wider society. The upside, though, a key trend pioneered by the Dutch Republic in their golden age, the era of Vermeer and Rembrandt and those incredible right, landscapes and amazing still lifes and in the 17th century. A key trend pioneered by the Dutch, taken up then by England, Britain, is the de facto redefinition of avarice or greed. The redefinition of greed as benign self-interest. We find, that, doesn't that sound better? When I give this lecture, I have, I have a slide behind me, no slide. How do you get rid of a deadly sin? Just rebrand it, just rebrand it. Just let's call it self-interest. Let's say it's natural. Everybody wants more and better stuff, what's wrong with that? Not only that, everybody pursuing more and better stuff is gonna be better for everyone. Thomas Hobbes, Bernard Mandeville, Montesquieu, David Hume, Adam Smith in different ways articulate ideas in this cluster. Everybody pursuing their own self-interest and sort of seeking to fulfill their own desires is gonna make everything better for everyone. This is the magic, the magic of Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? The prestidigitation of the invisible hand. The more, the merrier for everyone. What could go wrong? So a major increase in consumption throughout this, the, the society high to low in the 17th and the 18th centuries. This is what historians refer to. There's a huge literature on this now, the consumer revolution, the early modern consumer revolution. It involves more household goods, more clothes, new kinds of food products like coffee and tea and sugar. Who consumed any of those today? Okay, there we are, the heirs of the early modern consumer revolution. And of all of this, of course, as I'm sure all of you know, those products critically dependent, could not have uh, existed in anything like the forms that they did without the extensive Atlantic slavery and slave trade of the 17th and 18th centuries. By the middle of the 17th century, in the context of these deadlocked doctrinal controversies between Catholics and Protestants, in the wake of the wars of more than religion, the consumer revolution means Christians decide to start fighting less about religion and they start to go shopping instead. <laughs> and that's what we're still doing. That's what we're still doing. But in a world that's been, of course, dramatically transformed 
by technology and communications and institutions since the 17th century. These processes, their theorization, are all in place well before the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th century. Everything I've been talking about now, well before the beginning of the first application of fossil fuels in the form of coal to industrial production with cotton textiles in England around 1780. But the Industrial Revolution, subsequent industrialization in the 19th century, enormously expands and deepens those trends that I've just been talking about. It embeds them much more deeply in these European societies and their extension, not only in Britain and other European countries too. France, Belgium, Germany, and of course, in the 19th century, in the United States. By the late 19th century, we'll also have it in Meiji, Japan. In the 20th century, it's globalized in crucial, consequential ways. In the Soviet Union, under Stalin, in the long 1930s. In China, since the 1980s. These trends, what I was just talking about, the consumer revolution, that's never gone away. It's only ever been transformed and expanded through the advent of modern advertising and department stores in the late 19th century, shopping malls after the Second World War, all the way up to online buying and surveillance capitalism uh, today, as analyzed by a brilliant book by Shoshana Zuboff. Seen in the long term, industrial production and consumption based on fossil fuels is a fundamental shift in human history. We move, it's, it's analogous in certain respects to the shift from a world peopled entirely by hunter-gatherers to a, a world of settled agriculture and agricultural surpluses that are produced by coerced labor and field agriculture in the, in the earliest states of Mesopotamia, about 3400 BC. Fossil fueled industrial production, of course, makes possible massively greater energy capture and use that's transformed into much higher material prosperity for, for many more people based on a shift basically from animal and human and small-scale water and wind power in terms of you know, little windmills, not those gigantic right things now that dot our landscapes, and also by water wheels turned um, in mills. The shift from that to fossil fuels, a titanic shift in human history seen as a whole. It starts with coal in the 1860s, oil is added to it, then also natural gas in the early 20th century. The demand massively increases with the beginning of electrification in the 1880s, and of course, starting at the very beginning of the 20th century, it's supplemented by the advent of automobiles and petroleum-powered vehicles. All of this, of course, what I've just been talking about, all of this is absolutely central to modern narratives of human progress. Narratives of human progress that I think, if you, if you stop and think about it, you'd agree. We absorb simply by being part of the wider culture before we're ever really aware that we're absorbing it. In this sense, way back then, people were poor and primitive. As you get closer to the present, we get richer, happier, and more sophisticated. That's the, nobody told you that in first grade? but it was bubbling all around you. It's like, it's like asking fish, what's the water like? <laughs> They're like, what's water? The presumption that over time, progress 
has happened. Absolutely built into what I've just been talking about. So for example, between 1900 and 2000, US per capita uh, consumption increased eight times in real terms. Eight times in real terms over the course of the 20th century. For affluent persons in a developed world, what does this mean? All kinds of cool stuff and opportunities that are absolutely impossible, were absolutely impossible for previous generations of human beings, even to imagine. But even setting aside questions about, say, justice and the distribution of wealth and so forth, what have the environmental consequences been of all that progress? The globalization of fossil fueled consumerist capitalism coupled with the growth of the planet's population from about 1 billion in 1800 to more than 8 billion today, has meant not only undeniable, astounding technological progress, material comforts, travel opportunities, and so forth, but it's also having a gigantic collective impact on the Earth's natural systems. The biogeosphere, or for the theologically inclined, God's creation. Exactly the same thing seen in different categories and from different perspectives. I mean, it's all God's creation, right? Like the rings of Saturn. It's just that the Earth's biogeosphere is a lot more relevant part of God's creation than the rings of Saturn or, you know, comets that come around every few years or whatever. Since the early 2000s, geologists, other scientists and scholars have been arguing that this collective impact has pushed the planet into a new global geological epoch, the Anthropocene. A term known to people? Does anybody know this term? Some of you have at least heard it? Okay. The short version, what's the Anthropocene? It's not just climate change. It includes climate change, but it includes all the anthropogenic, that is human-caused caused influences that have a collective ongoing impact on the natural environment. So microplastics, right, from the summit of Mount Everest to the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean to, incidentally, inside all of our bodies. I know, great. We didn't ask them ask for it, right? Hold on. I just needed a sip of some microplastics <laughs> here. Mmm. Mmm. Tasty. Toxic chemicals, a sixth extinction of plant and animal species, massive biodiversity loss, Absolutely astoundingly massive garbage landfills, especially in African and Asian countries, et cetera. The collective impact of all that, the argument goes, is that we no longer live in the Holocene epoch. The epoch that started at the end of the last ice age about 11,700 years ago and lasted, so this argument goes, until about the middle of the 20th century. Climate historians know there have been, there've been natural shifts in the climate during that interval, during the Holocene. One of the most famous is the so-called Little Ice Age of about the middle of the 14th century up to 1800. When you see those Dutch paintings in the winter and they're actually skating, right? They're skating in the winter and they have those wooden skates and it's all charming and stuff. Those canals don't freeze in, in the Netherlands. They might have them frozen for centuries, right? But you think, oh yeah, the, west, the, west, the winters were a lot colder then, Little Ice Age. There have been natural shifts in the climate during the Holocene. Global temperatures were cooler sometimes than they, than they are now. But none of those changes were caused by human beings. None of them were anthropogenic. And they weren't the product of, uh, in other words, of human activity. 
historically speaking, radical, those radical inequalities I was talking about before that have essentially marked human civilization from ancient Sumeria all the way up to the present. The way of the world, fortunes for the few, misfortunes for the many. In the ancient world, in the Middle Ages, in the modern era, and today. They have contributed to the Anthropocene. Western Europe has been in the vanguard of that for centuries because of the centrality, the, the pivot, really, of the Industrial Revolution that passes through Britain. And the Anthropocene is marked by massive inequalities now. Climate justice, a term that might be known to some of you, by and large means addressing the fact that, for the most part, those least responsible for having brought about the Anthropocene and the global transformations in our environment in the global south are the ones who are bearing the worst of the, and the brunt of its effects. Since the, seventh, since the middle of the 18th century, let's push it back before the start of the Industrial Revolution just to capture it all, the United States has put more than eight times as much CO2 into the atmosphere as the entire African continent together. Woohoo! Let's celebrate the U.S., shall we? Good, great. Seen historically, seen theologically, the Anthropocene is largely the product of Western Christians, especially since the 17th century, right, coming out of the Reformation era. What's the consolation prize of, of constricting religion and having to separate it from the rest of life? The consolation prize is let's all agree to go shopping and life will be fun. We'll enjoy ourselves because life is made to be enjoyed. Oh, wait, you're supposed to give up your very self in order to Right? Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and dedicate yourself to your neighbor. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Overwhelmingly, the Anthropocene is the product of Western Christians since the 17th century having ignored what Jesus said with respect to acquisitiveness, the pursuit of wealth, possessions, and so forth. Overwhelmingly, Christians have sought to enjoy their lives, not to renounce their desires and their possessions in imitation of Christ, in effect, redefining greed away. Greedy, man, that's Warren Buffett, you know? That's Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk is greedy. I'm not greedy. I just, you know, I just want a second, I just want a vacation home. That's not greedy. I just want to care for my family. I love my family. How could that be bad? In effect, Christians, for the most part, have implied that they know better than what Jesus is said to have said, right? You cannot serve both God and mammon. And Christians have responded, yes, we can. <laughs> All right, I'll leave it there. Sorry for going on so long. You're great. Nobody got up and left. That was good. Sometimes that happens. I always assume they have somewhere to go. Usually it means they probably said something that really pissed them off. Anyway, thank you very much. Happy to take any questions people have. Obviously, this is, you know, skimming the surface is one thing. This is like, you know, a flying fish occasionally touching down while crossing the entire ocean. Go ahead. This is something kind of a side note, and it's something that you touched on that, that, uh, um, that just uh, provoked a lot of thought. I mean, uh, you talked about, like, kind of the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, yeah. and, like, how it developed and um, it, the role that free will has on, um, like, uh, um, how they define 
free will like for so that God isn't like posed in the light. I was just wondering if you could touch more on that. Yeah, I'm only, I'm only smiling and, and because it's, it's a great question, but it's also a massive, <laughs> a huge thing. I mean, this is, it's, it's probably the crux, the key doctrinal and theological difference between Roman Catholics and also, although they're not involved directly in the Reformation debates in Western Europe, Orthodox Christians too are on the side of Catholics in this regard. The issue fundamentally is this. Do human beings make any contribution to the way in which they're judged by God? Luther and after him Calvin even more, because Calvin's a much clearer and sort of um, willing to grasp the nettle, logical writer than Luther is, insists that if you make yourself a contributor to, your, the, to God's judgment about you. Ultimately, you're giving yourself veto power over divine power. You're the one who ultimately is determining whether or not you're saved or damned. And then what does that say about God after all? How important is you're You're saving yourself if you're contributing to your own salvation. This, this is the view. The Catholic view, and again, I'm simplifying radically here. The Catholic view is that unless you contribute something to your own salvation, then you have to, which is exactly what Calvin says. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, he says. You're making God responsible for saving some people and damning others, irrespective of anything that they do. That's predestination. There are the elect, there are the reprobate. But, but, but why, how could, <laughs> Job, who are you? Where were you when I made the universe? To God be the glory. My colleague and friend David Bentley Hart, a name known to anybody here? David Bentley Hart, an Orthodox, uh, American Orthodox theologian. He's a good friend of mine, a brilliant theologian. He's a severe critic of that Calvinist notion. I mean, he said, this, that is basically, you are literally wor worshiping Satan. If, you, if, you, if that's the God you worship, you know, that's like worshiping Satan. You know, some, he's, he's damning people to eternal damnation forever. Anyway, that's the gist of the matter. But you can, you can read a lot of, there's, there's many things you can find about that to read um, and, and, and sort of flesh out the, the basic difference. Yeah? I'm really interested in how you brought up the idea of redefinition. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? The redefinition of words and like the, the new look, same great taste of <laughs> Are there any books that you recommend that you want to learn more about that sort of thing and how the Protestant Reformation affected that change? Yeah, that's, that's, that's my thing. I mean, I, so yeah, you, could, you, I, you should read, read, and you should buy it too. Or as one of my colleagues says, I don't, care, I don't care if you read my book, but please go out and buy it. No, <laughs> no but I mean, I, I, I wrote a big book uh, about 10 years ago called The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. And that, that is an important theme in that book. The, many of the themes that I talked about, he, this, this big project now is really situating what I did there for the late Middle Ages up to the present, but it's just telling a huge, big backstory and also focusing a lot on the way Jesus fits into ancient Judaism, 
and its notions about justice and, and righteousness and concern for the poor and the vulnerable as violations of the Torah and so forth, and then what it is that early Christians, even prior to Constantine, do with that. How do, they, how do you deal with you know, this sort of extremism? And the fact that they're waiting for him to come back at any time means that you know, if, if you're expecting the it doesn't matter what time or place, if you're expecting the imminent end of the world, you're not kind of like, okay, let's build some institutions that, you know, sustainability is my thing. No, because, you know, he's going to return any time, right? God's going to intervene decisively. The planet curtain is going to be dropped down and so forth. So, but that's, I talk a lot about this, this stuff in that book. It's in paperback, so it won't cost you an arm and a leg. Go ahead. So it's kind of a broad question. We talked a bit about, um, among the church fathers, the, this first identification of the poor as a societal group, and yeah, the, uh, yes, almsgiving. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how that related to like the pre-existing practice of the Roman grain doll. Yes, great question. That yes. Oh yeah, sorry yeah, for the yeah. Okay, so th so this this question is with respect to the early church and its focus on and concern for the poor and almsgiving. How does this relate to the already existing, the Roman practice of the anona, right, the grain dole, which is that a certain number of citizens in Rome every year were entitled to free distribution of grain. It's like you know the minimal uh, subsistence requirement that certain European, Scandinavian countries are experimenting with now. In a way, it's, I didn't really think of that before, but maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. That. Um, particular practice has to do with somebody's legal standing in the city of, specifically in the city of Rome. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with whether they belong to this sort of category of poverty stricken or really as, as the most important historian who's written about this, more than one book, is the great emeritus historian of, of uh, ancient and early medieval Christianity at Princeton, Peter Brown. Um, he's written multiple books about the poor. His big, huge masterpiece is called Through the Eye of a Needle, you know, about wealth and the, and the, and the fall of Rome and early Christianity. But the, the, the big difference is that's, a, that's a, a specific targeted group of citizens brought, it, it's a form of philanthropy, but it's not singling out the poor as a category per se. The, the, the poor, especially one, by the time you get to the late fourth century, by the late fourth century, you have a much higher percentage of Christians in the major cities of, of the empire um, than we had, say, a century before. And there, they're giving, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned about almsgiving even beyond people who have, have already become Christians. And in fact, one of the arguments is one of the reasons more people become Christians is because there's that kind of care and concern for the poor. But of course, if you understand human beings as embodied souls, well, yeah, thank you very much for actually caring whether I have enough to eat. You know, I believe you when you say you love me if you actually give me food when I'm hungry. If not, less so. Less so. Yes? Thank, thanks for representing an older generation here this evening. I appreciate it. Thank you. I need to hear that. I mean it as a compliment. Hey, I have a lot of gray hair, too. Uh, would you decry the separation of church and state so that you'd see the role of the church uh, <laughs> as bringing non-Christian government back in line with the teaching of Jesus? Mm. This is a question about the present. Yes. 
There, in context, there were many good things about the separation of church and state in the 17th. It, it, it is totally intelligible, and it made sense about why to do it. Almost always, big, um, big decisions, big um, transformations like this, over the long term in particular, have all kinds of unintended consequences. That said, I see no realistic, plausible way of trying to undo the separation of church and state in, in, in Western societies that would not involve the overwhelming coercive power of the state to try to compel people. It would be like round two of Franco and Mussolini and Hitler. Good, let's try. It didn't work the first time, but who knows what, how good it could be this time. I'm being a bit you know, abrasive in putting it that way. But I have very little um, sympathy for Catholic integralists, for example, who think that, yeah, what we really need to do is get back to the high Middle Ages, because things were working so well then. They really weren't working so well. There are a lot of big problems. In the, and too many Catholics romanticize the Middle Ages as somehow, you know, this is the age of faith. People knew their place. Peasants were contented. You know, the, the society was basically like the externalization of the Summa Theologica. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. Would you see, as a follow-up, would you see the Catholic Church's role similar to the role of the Protestant black church where you had a nation within the nation to call government into account? Oh, gosh, sorry. I keep forgetting to repeat the question. So, I'm sorry. I forgot the last one. I, hopefully it'll, it'll be able to hear it. So, so, so I, do I see then the role of the Catholic Church as being something to the American black church, a, a nation within the nation trying to call the nation to its better self, for yes. example? That would be, I think that would be good, um, among other things. Um, I mean, I think our, our, our problems are very, very deep. They're way bigger than, you know, what, what, what does the church need to do to address climate change, for example? Pope Francis is saying what needs to be said. But the changes that need, would need to be made, really, to address the problems that we face are massive. They're huge, which is not to say we're doomed. Everything, every individual thing that every individual does to make the increase in global temperature and the, the things that we're already seeing less is a good thing. To mitigate the, the trajectories we're on, all of that is good. But I don't, I mean, the problems are not such that let's identify and we're, this is the solution, let's implement it. The world we live in is too entangled and too complicated for any kinds of easy solutions like that. And I, I think that's also the case with respect to the church. When, when students in Notre Dame ask me, you know, well, well if I'm really serious about you know, trying taking, taking on board the Anthropocene and the, the relationship of human beings to creation on the planet now and where we find ourselves in history, you know, what should I do? I say, well, if you're, if you're a scientist and you want to work on certain kinds of technological mitigation, carbon capture technology or things like that, great. That's good. You have that particular skill. Do it. If you are um, uh, sort of the, the type of person who could see yourself right, committed to a, a lifelong activism role, 
then do the Greta Thunberg thing. That rationally makes sense to me. That's somebody who's dedicating their life to urgent, urgent problems. Um, enter into a religious life is another option in a way that has an absolutely minimal footprint. Or consider giving yourself to a life of service to, um, to help mitigate the damage that the, ch the environmental changes uh, around the world are already bringing upon us in major ways. We think the refugee crisis now at our border to the south and in Europe and the Mediterranean is bad. The, the anticipation, the projection over the next 40 to 50 years, this, this will look like, oh, remember, the, remember those days when there were a few thousand people right, coming across the border every day? How quaint. I actually gave a talk a couple of years. You can tell I'm a really cheery guy, right? You know, <laughs> but I believe in the pursuit. You know, I really, I, I wish none of this was true. The, the research I do now is intellectually thrilling and existentially brutal. It's super interesting to see how these things fit together over the long durée. Um, but I gave a talk a couple years ago. It was at a it was at a, a, a small Protestant college in the Chicago area about the future of Christian ed, higher education, and I basically said I think there's a chance for a really powerful Christian revival in the second half of the of, of the 21st century, because I think the degree and the varieties of human suffering are going to increase massively, and we have a religious tradition that has amazing reservoirs for compassion co-identification with the suffering Christ, caring for those in need, and so forth. So religious revival on the horizon because people are going to be suffering so much. Cheery, right? Good stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to make light of it. These are super serious things. But sometimes I feel I have to somehow lighten the mood because it's, you know, I know this is not what you guys want to hear. So why did you invite this guy? You know, he's such a downer. I'm really not, but you know. Reality is what it is. What are you going to do? Yeah. How much does the trend of there's a certain way of, of justifying things by looking at, say, it's looking at poverty rates, and you can go give any number of statistics saying poverty rates are down. So what we're doing is, in fact, working. Yeah. That's, so the, this is a question about the fact that global poverty has decreased significantly over the last 40 or 50 years. So that's actually a, a plus. That's a good thing, right? Which, to the extent and insofar as it means right, people are no longer in danger of starving, that, that would have before. Or, or let's just say, OK, you're not starving to death, but you know, you're destitute in, in rags and leaving it barely, barely staying alive. That, per se, unquestionably, is a good thing, no doubt. But here's a really problematic thing. Almost all international development models in the post-colonial so-called third world of the global south since the Second World War have been premised on bringing Western-style infrastructure, consumption, ways of life, material existence, and so forth, characteristic of the wealthy nations to those nations. When you upscale all of those things, in those nations, and people who previously were poverty-stricken are now consuming like Westerners, what's the environmental effect of that? It's disastrous. 
that's the tragedy of, and that, I mean, I think, for me, it's that particular, that helping people in this way is leading to really dire environmental consequences that should lead us back more to more fundamental questions about what really is driving the desire for constantly more and better things. And is that actually, particularly for Christians, is that something that is actually encoded in the New Testament? Can you imagine Jesus coming back to saying, and say, you've got to get the economy back on track? <laughs> no, we cannot imagine. That is just not what he would say, right? He wouldn't say that. What would he say in the United States, among other things? How can tens of millions of people not even have any health care, right? How, 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 can a, how can a country with so much wealth tolerate people living in, in, in tent cities in, their, in their, their biggest conglomerations of wealth and so forth? So, you know, the fact that people are out of the direst poverty, the, the issue, what, what never happened, what never happened was imagining and trying to instantiate a sustainable level of human coexistence with, which literally had enough for everyone, but the focus of which was building the kind of human relationships that everybody would want to share, where human beings outside of their immediate families really did treat one another like brothers and sisters. And in the same way that if your brother or sister was in dire need, you wouldn't think twice about going to help them, so too with respect to the people in your community. But the thing is, those kind of human relationships, living that way, doesn't require very much material stuff. We have, inst and by we, I mean human beings in general. I don't mean people in this room. Don't worry, it's, not pers it's never personal. Scholarship and, and inquiry is never personal for me. It just enfolds us. What we have done instead is we've built a civilization around a deadly sin. We called avarice by a different name and called the good's life the good life. That's what we've done. And let's face it, we like it. You know, I got one of these too. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, you can tell. I mean, I'm not outside of what it is that I'm talking about. Like I just said, it's not personal. It affects me too. So. If you build a whole civilization around a deadly sin, you, bad things are going to happen. And they have. Imagine that. Jesus warned us. We didn't do it. Now we're facing the consequences. Cheery, huh? <laughs> ah, but you know, maybe he actually meant what he said. Go ahead. So I, I'm just really wrestling through <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, can you repeat the whole thing? <laughs> so this whole idea of um, Jesus teaching against wealth and not pursuing it, and the idea that we're living in a culture that's kind of built around pursuing yeah. wealth, I, I've always struggled to, to figure out how to live with the proper amount of respect to Jesus' teaching in that like regard, like taking him seriously there, that we shouldn't pursue well, while also having enough to be able to make an impact in society, or 
I don't know, like, am I thinking about it wrong? I don't know. Where you're asking the right, these are the, you're pulling on the right loose threads, if that makes sense. There's not an easy, I don't think there's a single answer to that question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Could you say it again? Yeah. Oh, so, so, oh, yeah. Is there, is there, so the, the gist is um, trying to do justice to Jesus' radical teachings about dispossession, suspicion of wealth, avoiding acquisition of possessions and so forth on the one hand, but also right, doing so in such a way as to actually have an impact on, on the wider society. I, think the, I don't think there's a simple answer to like this is, this is, this is what you do, ABC, right? But the direction of an answer, it seems to me, lies in are you more likely, not just you but anybody, more likely to have an impact by, according what Jesus says, a sort of moderate, healthy respect and doing what you can? Or is it precisely in going the whole way? leading a life that really is an alternative life. Because let's face it. I mean, when he says the apostles, you know, look at, the, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. You know, God takes care of them. He'll take care of you. Focus on spreading the kingdom of God. Right? Love other people. Put yourself totally at the service of others. And God will take care of it. Very, I mean, I say, very few people, in my experience, do that. If we're honest with ourselves, right? So, you know, maybe this is the, this is, remember this lecture from henceforth, three years ago. What's your name? Victor. Victor. St. Victor. <laughs> it started here. <laughs> Not to put any pressure. But, no, no, we all, I mean, this is the thing, right? This is what's so unnerving about it. This is so heavy. Jesus is so scary. I mean, a, a student of mine, another name student, she taught in the Alliance for Catholic Education. We were talking about this at dinner. Um, students earn a master's in education from Notre Dame. They teach in underserved Catholic schools. Many of them continue to teach. She was doing the ACE program, and she came back after her one year of teaching, you know, and I can't remember she was at tough schools. So it was in Mississippi. She comes back, we're talking about this kind of stuff, right? And we're having coffee. At a certain point, she leans across the table and she says, Professor Gregory, the gospel is terrifying. <laughs> and I said, yes, it is, Mary, <laughs> right? Um, and it's also wonderful, you know? I mean, and I think the fact that we, and it's, you see it in the early church writings about this too. They're struggling with exactly the same thing, that we're, we're drawn to it. You know, Bono really is a great theologian. When he says, when he says, I can't live with or without you. Right? I mean, this is the thing, something like that. We've gone on a long time. Do we still have time or? Maybe one more question. One more, yeah, that's always a, a polite thing to do. Otherwise, it's just cut off. One more question. Yeah, go ahead. So I was wondering if you could relate the kind of traditional Christian ethic of almsgiving to the modern conception of philanthropy, how the ideas are related, how they're different? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, thank you. 
I'm really helpless. <laughs> Can I relate the um, traditional Christian understanding of almsgiving to modern notions of philanthropy? I think, um, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I probably can't give a, the kind of response I would give if I had more time to think about it. It won't be adequate. But I, I do think there are some pretty um, significant parallels in certain respects on the sort of, on the, on the large scale, let's say, you know, um, uh, Phil Knight gives a billion dollars to the University of Oregon, just to pull a random example out of my, um, or pays for a big new building or something like that, right? We, we can find examples like that of, you know, royal or aristocratic patrons in the Middle Ages or the early modern period who say, gave all the money to build a new church, something like that, right? So that's kind of high-end almsgiving, philanthropy. We can, we can see a parallel there. I think um, less, my impression, and I guess this isn't really something I'm, I've studied the literature on or know it well, but my impression is that there was much more broadly understood a responsibility and a duty to, let's say, um, low-grade, give-what-you-can sort of almsgiving in the Middle Ages, particularly after the friars have sort of preached over you know, uh, people left for a couple of generations in the 13th century. By the late 13th century, there are a lot of laity who are really keen on the friars. They're really doing, the, the cities are teeming with all kinds of different sorts of um, uh, sort of charitable organizations and things like this. But the, idea, the, the, the extent to which everybody would have been exposed to ideas that almsgiving is a duty, it's everyone's duty, and that's what we do as Christians and so forth. That, I think, is far less pervasive now. There are, there are whole swaths of political opinion, for example, both on the far left, I mean, the traditional Marxist view is right, don't give alms, because you know, that actually just perpetuates the unjust system and you know, slows down the revolution. On the right, it's don't give alms. Those people are lazy. They should get off their asses and get a job, right? So come on, you know, I'm not gonna fund those welfare queens and all this sort of stuff. So there are ways of getting, you like that, right? I don't mince words. I don't mince words. <laughs> but, but, so there are, there are sort of, let's say, socially acceptable political outs for almsgiving. It, it's nowhere near as pervasive that, for example, you'd give, I mean, I think the vast majority of people who pass by, you know, somebody who's obviously homeless, you know, with a, with a cup out on the street, most people just walk right by him now. I don't think that would be the case in, in, in the Middle Ages. So I think that has changed. High-end, though, high-end philanthropy, it depends also whether you put your name on it or not. I'm impressed by anonymous gifts of, say, you know, nine figures, in, or a gift of nine figures and nobody knows who gave it. Once you put a name on it, it's like, eh. That's like, that's like you know, the, the tradition of ancient Greek and Roman philanthropy, too. Then it's, you know, let's all congratulate Mr. Rich for giving away some money. But, you know, Jesus had an answer for that, too. You know, if you do it in secret, then your Father in Heaven will know. If you do it for a show, then, you know, you've got your reward already. He really did see those things. 
It's kind of scary. You might almost think he was more than human. <laughs> anyway, that's a good ending line. Thanks, guys. Fun. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.